Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 60. We're going to talk about OpenStack. And Tom's going to be quiet a lot because I'm going to learn about OpenStack along with many of you. Uh, I got Jay with me and Jaden. And Jaden is an OpenStack expert because even Jay's like, well, let's bring someone on for this one. We really want to answer people's questions about it. We really want to dive into it. Uh, but I don't know that me and Jay are really completely as qualified as uh, Jaden here. So welcome, Jaden. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So how do we get started with OpenStack? I think we're going to cover probably uh, some of the topics and uh, yep. clear up some confusion and things like that about it or what it is, what it isn't, and uh, why it's pretty cool. <laughs> and I'm really excited about this one because, I I mean, we've been asked about OpenStack a number of times in the chat room. I mean, we may or may not have answered those questions uh, as they came up, but I've seen them and I've seen you guys ask about it. And I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time, so I'm really excited. I, I feel like I'm specifically like 20% qualified to talk about this. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> but, um, I'm learning it right now, so I'll be more qualified later. But we have, like Tom said, we have the expert. So Yep. Cool. Um, so just, just to make sure everybody understands, so OpenStack is a um, open source project that aims to give you the same kind of cloud experience um, that you can get from VMware or Google or Amazon, um, but on your own hardware in your own data center. Um, and it's all open source and has a really nice, vibrant community with uh, people from small teams to big enterprises. Um, it's especially popular among telecommunication providers. I think nine out of the top 10 telecommunication providers in the world use OpenStack to power their networks. Um, so if you're using 5G, there's a really good chance that OpenStack is underneath it. Um, but OpenStack is also very popular. Uh, among other big companies and small companies. Uh, I know, I think walmart.com and Walmart um, internally uses OpenStack to power um, their infrastructure. Um, Alibaba Cloud in China um, is a really big OpenStack public cloud. Um, in Europe, they have lots of, of OpenStack public clouds. Um, if you're a, a T-Mobile uh, customer, they their uh, parent company, uh, Deutsche Telekom, runs a big public cloud using OpenStack. Um, so. It's You're probably, definitely if, yeah. used in the enterprise market for sure. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very popular. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really excited too about OpenStack now because people are trying to bring it down market so that um, home lab users, small teams, um, people like that can use OpenStack and get that advantage. Um, I want to say one of the important things is uh, a lot of the cloud companies, they always want you to use their proprietary thing that gives you a lock-in to their cloud. You know, whatever that is, whatever the offering is from any of these large providers, they don't want they the lift and shift is not a term they like they're like how do we stop lift and shift it's kind of like i i don't know that they actually say that in a board meeting but something tells me they do <laughs> yes they're like how do we stop them what thing can we give them that'll keep them from leaving and that's i think what's really cool about things like OpenStack is it becomes a little bit hardware agnostic whether you're running it local as you said in a home lab or in the enterprise environment on your bare metal or you know tying it to a series of other servers it kind of eliminates that lock-in that way if you know there's a better opportunity um hardware wise to physically host this and get connectivity you can lift and shift it over somewhere else absolutely i think one of the the big things i like about OpenStack too is that it gives you a chance to um look under the hood and see how things work and get hands-on um with the infrastructure in a way you can't on public clouds and i mean if, even if you look at a lot of the public cloud um, certifications and education they're teaching you how to use the cloud in their particular way in their particular fashion, on their particular yep. terms. Uh, but with OpenStack, you get a, a much more well-rounded 
um, cloud education, I think. And if you want to go digging in the, the internals and, and see how the networking or the hardware or the storage all works, you can absolutely do that since it's open source and um, not locked down in any way. I think this is fun too, because I, this is where the enthusiast in the audience we have, you know, they don't like the word serverless because we all know it runs somewhere. Serverless is what's sold to people who don't want to know how the magic happens. And we're the yes, type yeah. of people we want to be there. We want to see how the magic happens, um, you know, from the bare metal on forward. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so just, just for folks who, who've been following along, um, I would say OpenStack is probably like an enterprise or, or more professional version of like Proxmox or that kind of solution. Um, so it's it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, I will say one of the, the big problem areas with OpenStack is that the um, deployment journey isn't isn't super great. Um, there's some really great tools that can like get you uh, with a, a toy OpenStack or like a test OpenStack, but it's really hard to go from there to production and running it. Um, you know, running workloads and having it be ready and not not going to be at risk of, of failing or going down. Yeah, that's well, we'll hopefully clarify a few things to get it set up. But I know that's one of the things. It's not like a distribution. It, you just love the distribution. Here's your web UI and load your VMs, yes. right? <laughs> that's not it's, what OpenStack does. <laughs> well, it's getting I mean, better, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen there's there's multiple ways to set it up, which I'm I'm sure we'll get into. I. Yeah, just as an aside, I've used OpenStack a number of times, and I really like it a lot. Um, at the time I was using it, there was like three, maybe four different ways that you could install it, which was interesting, but it's also like, which way do I go with? And then in the chat room, someone brought up MicroStack. So it seems to me like there's a, it may not be like a distribution that's on an ISO. You could just load and everything's there, although I wouldn't be surprised if somebody has done that. But there's different distributions, but in a different context as far as like uh, how it's distributed to the user. Um, how do you feel about that in, in like home lab in general? Like is the footprint too high or is it kind of like lowering down or is it approachable more now than it was before? So you can definitely get it on a smaller footprint uh, now than in the past. It does require some, some careful configuration um, and consideration and now if you're just looking to try out OpenStack and, and play with the OpenStack features and not deploy workload, um, you can deploy OpenStack on a single machine using DevStack. Um, that's the official OpenStack like testing evaluation um, setup. And DevStack will, will set up all of the core OpenStack services in a single virtual machine. Um, you do need a, a good amount of CPU and RAM. Um, but I think, you know, I think eight, eight to 16 cores and 32 gigabytes is enough to uh, get you to a point where you could use the OpenStack API and, and evaluate OpenStack um, in that way. But that's definitely not for um, deploying workloads. That's for the people who develop OpenStack to make a code change, run it, make sure it still works, and then keep developing OpenStack. Um, so that's that's the, the bare introductory, like, oh, this is what OpenStack looks like um, kind of solution. Um, you can get that from the, the main OpenStack website. Mm -hmm. um, MicroStack is Canonical's approach on that. Um, so it's a little better than DevStack. Um, you might be able to get a little more done. You might be able to do a little bit more with it than DevStack, but I think it's still uh, newish and kind of in early days. I don't think it's quite ready for, for production and using it to, to run production workloads. Um, but I understand Canonical is working real hard to get it there and to make it um, easy to manage OpenStack and deploy OpenStack. Um, so if you've got an Ubuntu system and you like using Snap, um, definitely 
try it out using MicroStack. Should be a really easy way to, to get you set up and get you with OpenStack without having to worry about the configuration. Because uh, it's it's the configuration that really makes OpenStack uh, difficult. Um, like you said, it's so powerful and it's hardware agnostic. You can run it in all these different ways. But because it's that way, you really have to know what you're doing and how to map the OpenStack configuration for the networking and the storage onto your um, exact situation. Um, so, so I think most oh. of it's in the fundamentals of getting the OS set up and ready for the OpenStack to sit on top of making sure you have like the storage persistence and everything else is more or less, right? That's where a lot of the heavy lifting is when getting it set up. Yes. So making sure that you have your, uh, I would say really the big pieces are the, the storage setup and the networking setup um, so that all of your OpenStack services can communicate with each other and so you have storage for your virtual machines. Uh, OpenStack can store just directly on disk using like LVM uh, volumes. Uh, a very popular configuration though is to use Ceph, um, which is a, a highly available open source um, enterprise cloud storage solution as your OpenStack storage backend. Um, that way, if you have a hardware failure, you uh, don't lose data. Uh, I, yeah, I think this important goal when you're setting these up is when you build these clusters is having some level of storage persistence. Ceph distributed storage through that works well. Um, then it doesn't matter the nodes. This is, you know, once you get into the larger enterprise, the nodes are just irrelevant. You have as many as yes. you need to get the workload done. But if one dies, you just pull it out and uh, kick off the install script and load it again. And it reattaches to Ceph because what's really important is your data and the whatever you're running within there, that wherever you spin it up within the cluster, your data persistence is the same. So you can pick up where you left off if one of these nodes dies or has to be upgraded or replaced. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but I understand, you know, as great as Ceph is, this is a whole extra set of complexity and technology that you now have to understand and configure and manage um, on top of managing OpenStack. Yes. Um, yeah. And then the, the networking pieces, it's just making sure that you've got the, um, well, just that all the OpenStack nodes can communicate with each other and make sure that they they know what's going on. I mean, there you can simplify that by not running like a highly available configuration. Uh, that's so that's the experience I'm coming from is running it like in production, sort of that enterprise kind of, of workload. Um, and you, you can do all of that on three uh, physical boxes um, with careful configuration. And if you run storage, control plane and compute all on the same box, um, but I, I know for like a home lab, you can absolutely probably do it on one box or just have uh, one box for control plane, one box for storage, one box for um, computer or, or simplify it in a lot of ways if you're not worried about hardware failure um, impacting you. Yeah, if you just want to get it up and running, you can run it on an individual server, not for production workloads, but for absolute, you want to learn. It's the same, it's just scaled down. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, if you if you are want to be more adventurous, if you're wanting to do more than just the the basic like oh this is an OpenStack trial kind of thing, um, there are tools to do that. Uh, Red Hat makes a well they have their own OpenStack platform. The um, open source version of it is called Triple um, O, which is OpenStack on OpenStack. Uh, that one is probably more geared towards the enterprise because the way Triple O works is that you set up an OpenStack cloud that is the under cloud, and then you use that to deploy other OpenStack clouds um, after it. Uh, but that that Triple O requires um, baseboard management controllers. It uses IPMI, Redfish, those kinds of things. Um, it'll it'll very much streamline the um, setup of OpenStack for you and make managing clouds very easy. Uh, but it does have all of these extra extra pieces. 
Um, and you have to run an OpenStack cloud first before you can set up OpenStack clouds, which a little bit of a barrier to uh, to entry uh, for Triple O. <laughs> so I think one of the one of the things that I like about this um, in terms of home lab users is that I feel like it gives people that wouldn't otherwise have a project to work on to learn a, a project where they have different servers that have to communicate with each other because when I think this might be a confusing thing for some people. When they hear OpenStack, they think of OpenStack as one thing, just one component, one thing to install, kind of like, you know, HTOP. You install HTOP, you know, which is a bad example, but it's not one package, one service. You have um, OpenStack consisting of multiple things and some of which you've already talked about. And then um, for the home lab person, you know, if they want to do it right and split the services off onto different servers, then they start to look at real enterprise you know, issues that they have to try and solve, like getting them to communicate to each other, creating a backend network, you know, like your man management network and whatnot, and then a VM network and how they route together. And then it's flexible too, because if you're, um, you know, if, if everything starts to run slow because you're just rolling out a bunch of things, you could just actually replace the compute, um, you know, or server or add another one to kind of scale it out. And I'm, I, I can't think of very many projects that gives people that many examples of things that people in their enterprise IT do like pretty much all the time. Yes, you are absolutely uh, right about that for OpenStack. Um, that it is, it's, it's a modular kind of architecture. Um, so even the core services have um, seven or eight different projects that each have multiple um, subservices. Um, where the company I work for, we use Kala Ansible to deploy OpenStack, and that uses um, Ansible playbooks and some tooling to deploy OpenStack services as Docker containers. And I think in our deployment, that has the core services plus uh, two extra services. There's something, there's maybe 70 Docker containers. Um, so 70 wow. different individual service processes that are running um, that make OpenStack happen. And that's everything from the database that keeps track of OpenStack's internal state to the RabbitMQ messaging broker um, that all of the different services use to communicate to um, the actual uh, compute hypervisor service that runs your VMs and provisions the VMs um, and keeps them, them up and running. Um, so there really is a lot that goes into to OpenStack and the choice of configuration tool um, your choice of configuration tool influences what your resulting OpenStack cloud will look like. Um, so Triple O on the one side, I think they use, I think they install OpenStack using RPMs. Um, Kala Ansible uses uh, Kala container or Docker containers in the Kala project. Um, there's another deployment that uses Ansible called OpenStack Ansible that deploys OpenStack services as LXC um, containers. And then I think, I think at MicroStack it does it all in snaps. Um, but I think there may be, I think if you do canonical OpenStack, it does it as uh, deb packages. Um, so there's there's really a lot, like you said, that that you get into like an enterprise person would uh, trying to decide these things and, and see, um, is it this way or that way? Or how should yeah. I configure this? And so, uh, for spelling real quick, it's K-O-L-L-A Ansible for those of you that are want to take some notes on yes. the podcast here and listen and want to Google. It's, it almost sounds like you said koala, but I, I, I was making sure I got the spelling right. Because so I was like, I want to make sure I get that right. <laughs> yes, K-O-L-L-A. So I wanted to mention really quick, um, you know, some of the names of the components because 
you know, as an aside for everybody that's watching live, if it looks like, well, Jay's just Googling this as he goes. I am actually doing that. Um, so I was go I was Googling this because I, for whatever reason, I just, you know, haven't memorized the names of the different uh, components. But I have it right here. So we have Nova. And these names are really cool. I mean, they are, I mean they're really good at naming things, right? So we have Nova, which handles compute. We have Glance, which gives you access to images and Swift for object storage. The dashboard, the UI is called Horizon. So my understanding is that means you could run, you know, the UI on, on whatever server you want or scale yes. that out as well. There's Keystone for identity. Networking is handled by Neutron. We have Cinder for block storage. Um, and, and it goes on. Um, there's there's others here. So that is those are the names of the different kind of components. And it's very common, at least in my experience, I've seen people that are just testing it out. Like I said, they have a um, VM and they're running everything on there. I guess my first question before we talk more about these different um, individual components is, is that why the footprint is so huge? Because I know one mindset could be like, why would I run OpenStack on my server if it's going to run slow on a you know 32 gig machine? But if you think about it, like, but you're running all these different things on one machine that's different than you know proxmox which is all in one am i correct on this is that why the the footprint is so high than compared to other things uh yeah i that's probably a fair assessment that there is so much that openstack uh does and so much that it is doing under the under the because don't don't forget openstack is is built to um handle thousands of, of virtual machine instances tens of thousands of virtual machine instances or um you know a hundred thousand cpu cores of compute like those are the kinds wow. of scales people are, are are using it for. And if you're if you're um, you know if you're running a hundred thousand CPU cores of compute, it's okay to spend maybe a hundred on uh, your OpenStack control plane services and and the storage services. Um, so there there definitely is a high um, cost, and this is one of the troubles or one of the challenges of running a, a hyperconverged environment um, like we we do, is that you have to I mean, honestly, I think at our, our default uh, configuration, OpenStack's using um, OpenStack and Ceph use between two and four um, CPU um, cores and 32 gigabytes of RAM, um, and that's on a low activity um, cloud, like a small cloud that maybe could run um, 20 or 30 VMs um, at once. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you're getting into like the big, 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 big clouds and you're running 1,000 VMs or 10,000 or a million VMs, you're going to see much higher uh, resource usage from those those services. Um, which, again, if you're that big, it doesn't matter if you need to spend 100 gigabytes or a terabyte on that. But for the home lab, not everybody has terabytes of RAM just in their pockets uh, ready to, to go and spend on control plane services. But if you do... Let us know because we want to <laughs> talk to you. Because how did you come into you know possession of all that RAM and all those CPUs that some you know you know medium businesses may not even have? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me like the experience was, and it it still kind of is, where if one way of installing OpenStack doesn't work for you, I mean, for most things, there's one way to install it. You get frustrated. You just have to get through it. You have to ask questions, do whatever you want to do or can do to get through it. But then at a certain point, it's like, well, this might be difficult for someone who's starting out. But with OpenStack, if the way you're installing it doesn't work for you and you gave it a fair shot, 
chances are, this is true of my experience, try a different way to install it. And it might even work better, might even be easier and quicker because of the different ways that you can actually get it installed. So I think that's kind of like a benefit we don't normally have. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, whenever we were, whenever I started working with OpenStack, um, we tried, the team of one tried two or three different ways. Um, I tried triple O. It was pretty good, but uh, it wasn't, it was too much for what we were trying to do. Um, some of our people tried deploying it just with the, the packages. Some people tried deploying it with uh, Kala Ansible. Um, and that's what suited us best. We tried, you know, we really liked Kala Ansible and that's what we um, used. Um, oh, I, I do remember speaking of the Kala Ansible project, they, the people who are behind that project, they make a really nice all-in-one installer um, as well. It's called a universe from nothing. And you can find it on so much. I think I have that book <laughs> on my shelf right now, actually. You can I, find I, the, uh, the name from the project on GitHub under it's um, done by a company named Stack HPC. Um, they do high performance computing with OpenStack and target like the, the niche research um, academic market. Um, but that was actually, now that I think about it, the best installer um, for OpenStack I, I've seen. Um, and I did it on a laptop that had like four cores, eight threads, eight gigabytes of RAM. And it was it was good. It worked. It worked well enough to like give me that login screen where I could see, um, oh, this is OpenStack. Um, and one of the other things, too, that I like about having so many different deployment options is that you can see how they think OpenStack should be deployed. So you can look at their configuration and you can copy off their notes and you can cheat a little bit um, with your own deployment and like figure out, oh, okay, they did it this way. So let me try that. And oh yeah, it works for me too. Great. Um, that's a, a huge, huge help than just trying to grit your teeth and push through it. Um, if you've only got the one option for installation. I think you just described a normal conversation between a couple of home labbers in the same room, you know, <laughs> copying off each other, copying off the nodes. So this works better, but that, you know, and then just keep trying different things. And um, I, I think a lot of people's home labs are a combination of what you know someone else was doing what they thought up and best things they found from either side so it actually kind of makes me think that it's something that might even be right at home for these people for us what's the preferred base os when you're doing these like well because you do this all the time so what's your preferred base os i should say <laughs> um okay so we we are the company i work for is a, a CentOS uh shop has been for for decades um, so we use CentOS for the underlying um, operating system um, to run OpenStack. Now, I'll caveat that I understand um, it's been a turbulent time for CentOS. Yes. Um, <laughs> you're probably going to find, you are probably going to find better support using Ubuntu. Um, I think even uh, Kala Ansible and the Kala project um, that we use, it has, uh, I'm not going to say necessarily limited support for CentOS, but I think they're, they make fewer guarantees than they do for Ubuntu. Um, so I would think, I would say overall, if you're not Red Hat, you're probably using Ubuntu to deploy, um, OpenStack. And one, one other side of that too, is that, um, I know Ubuntu historically has had better, uh, it, it's gotten newer kernel features in faster, um, than I would say CentOS does. And some of those newer kernel features have had performance improvements for virtualization, um, uh, either in. Uh, performance or just in uh, new features being able to pass through through more. Um, I'm sure there there are, I'm sure Alma Linux and Rocky Linux will come out more, but I haven't seen them yet. Um, I think folks are still waiting to see how they they shape up. 
Uh, yeah. so one of the things you have to remember too is that these most of these OpenStack users are big enterprises and they have really long cycles uh, that they're going to operate on like a, a five-year cycle for refreshing their cloud hardware or their um, core cloud operating system environment. So you brought up an interesting point about CentOS, and I don't want to make this episode into a you know anti you know <laughs> IBM CentOS Red Hat episode or anything, but um, I think you know everybody who knows they know what happened. If you don't, I mean, you can Google uh, what happened with CentOS and probably get like two pages in Google at least minimum of and a video you know, from Jay talking about this. But <laughs> um, why I wanted to kind of uh, elaborate more on that is because. I think it's really interesting. I didn't really think about this particular aspect because my impression, and let me know if you disagree, that people that run OpenStack, just like a lot of other enterprise solutions, they're not really trying to have too much change. If it works, they want something long-term supported that they could keep patching, but they don't have to like, you know, reinvent the wheel. And you are mentioning your company using CentOS and has been for decades. But I do kind of feel like this is kind of like a side of it I didn't even think about that the you know change with CentOS is causing change you know with people that really don't benefit from that and OpenStack deployments you know you're not trying to kind of um, play with it too much if it's working it's working right so that had to have been a pretty big thing in the OpenStack community to have to figure out what, how to deal with that. Yeah, I would say you've got it right. Um, if you look at the OpenStack releases, actually, so um, the release page, you'll find that there's a tons of really old releases that are community supported. Um, so OpenStack only supports three releases. There's the current release and then two previous releases. That's what the community officially supports. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's this long tail of OpenStack users and providers who are using, um, you know, four or five year old versions of OpenStack, but they are backporting the patches, they're bringing the code uh, back because they can't shut down their cloud to upgrade and do a, a you know, upgrade to a new release, or they don't have the resources to test that, or it works. So why, uh, why change it? Um, why do, you know, they don't need those new features. Um, I mean, I even think the, some of the um, main platforms like the OpenStack Red Hat, I think they only, um, they're, they lag a few major releases behind on their hosted OpenStack platform. And again, it's mm. just like people people um, say, it's just the enterprise, they want to they know exactly how it's going to work and they want to have plenty of time to make sure it's, it's right. And they want to, well, honestly, avoid changing as much as they can uh, to avoid introducing new problems or bugs. Um, so I think that's definitely a dynamic that's going on in the um, OpenStack um, community. Yeah, when you're running a thousand nodes at a time, you kind of want those thousand nodes to be predictably the same and not necessarily because just because a new OS feature came out, um, it doesn't really lend itself. That's when sometimes people misunderstand. And I work with some of the enterprise environments like they really value support and stability and lack of change, especially at the base level, because it could create, um, well, an environment that is unpredictable and then uh, hinder their service delivery of whatever it is they actually serve up on OpenStack for their product. Yeah. So there's a, they're like, how would this disrupt business? <laughs> Do we need the latest version of this software uh, as the base OS? Does these new features drive anything that, you know, makes our experience to the customer better or worse? And those decisions, um, you know, they have cascading effects at problems at scale. <laughs> yes, Tom's got it absolutely right. I mean, if you've got a thousand servers that you have to update, 
that is a huge amount of work and time that you have to spend. Uh, even if you have it well automated, you've got to really carefully manage that that process. Uh, and I mean, honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these enterprises will only consider this this kind of move when it's time to do like a refresh, uh, when they've reached the the end of life, or if they're going to open a new region. Um, which that also carries the the fun cost of you having to, to manage two infrastructure um, operating systems. And that, that's been another um, challenge for, for us um, on our team is that we're like, well, you know, we could switch to Ubuntu, but we still have to maintain the CentOS systems. So now we have two systems we have to keep up and up, up to date and, and running instead of just the one, because it's going to be, um, you know, a couple of years before we can end of life, the um, CentOS system all the way. Are you using, are you considering stream at this point? I mean, I, I mean, how, what are you guys going to do about if it's okay to answer that question about how to handle the situation sent to us, is it, um, did you guys try out uh, sent to us stream yet to see if that was going to work? Or did you guys decide maybe, because um, I have, I mean, if you're on sent to us eight, then you're out of support, right? Or am I wrong? Or are you on seven? Uh, I think so. We, we, we're unfortunately on sent us eight. Oh, uh, no. We made that upgrade before everything happened. And that was like a, that was like a big deal going from seven to eight. People were like, great. We made it to eight perfect we're locked in for the next decade and then nope. we weren't um i think we still have a little bit of time on centos 8 uh if we don't last it's, december okay last december it's 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 one of those things that we we are trying to solve but we haven't uh, settled on a good solution or a solution that we like um i know centos 8 stream um looks good enough um alma linux is is pretty pretty solid looking um and I know, like as a company, we we have some previous relationships with um, Cloud Linux. Uh, we use Cloud Linux in other other places um, on the um, in motion hosting side, and that's been a really good experience. Um, so I, I think I think it's one of those things that people still have. No, nobody's wanted to say, "All right, we're going to do this, guys. We're going to we're going to take this pain and we're going to do it." Uh, yet, but I'm going to guess when we get to that point, it's going to be CentOS CentOS. Eight stream or um, all Linux. I, I need to clarify and correct myself on something. Um, yes, support ended uh, for CentOS eight last December, but that doesn't mean you can't get security updates. It's just right. that you're not going to get them um, from CentOS itself. But there are companies out there that um, you can pay, and they're you know making patches for CentOS 8. So I don't mean to imply your company is, you know, just sitting there as a sitting duck, not, you know, patching anything. That's totally not what I mean. But um, for the average person, right, um, CentOS 8 is end of life. For an, for an enterprise, it might be a completely different story there. Um, but that that does, you know, that is a little turbulent, you know, um, understandably so. But it's kind of like the reason why I tell a lot of companies, you know, always have a plan B distribution. You don't have to use it, right? But you just have to test your configuration on it. But getting back to OpenStack, um, there's just so many resources that we could point people to. One of the things I wanted to talk about too was that it, it how highly developable development, I, I can't even talk today, right? Uh, it has an API, which you know all the cool kids and cool services have that. But you could also, there's Python libraries you can hook into. You could script it with Python. You could script it with Ansible. You could create a instance via the API and never even touch the UI of the actual um, OpenStack installation. So I do want to point out too that it's more than just figuring out how things work together, networking, although that's a huge part of it. 
you could also practice your Python skills and your, um, you know, DevOps skills against it too, almost to the point where, you know, someone might think that it's too heavy to run in home lab, but I can have a counter argument that um, not many things give you like every single piece in one solution. That's what people, you know, actually use in the enterprise day to day in one particular installation. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, well said, Jay. Um, so OpenStack is written in Python. It is entirely uh, done in Python, um, all of the, the core source code. So you can download it. You can check it out. You can modify it if you want, if you've got something you'd like to do. Um, OpenStack does have first-class support for popular automation tools and software. Um, you can use Terraform to deploy your OpenStack resources. You can use Ansible to deploy your OpenStack resources. Um, the community has providers and, and adapters for those those libraries. Um, OpenStack itself has a um, command line interface if you'd like to use the command line. Um, at its core, though, uh, OpenStack has it's it's a API first kind of platform, so they really heavily emphasize using the REST API um, to do things. And it's every single project has a Python library that you could pull into. Um, a script or a program to do some kind of automation or do some kind of task. Um, and since, like I said, it's open source, if you've got something that you need to do or that you want to try out, you can absolutely do it. Um, like one of the things that I, I've, I've done with OpenStack is uh, modify Horizon so that it can use OpenStack's native two-factor authentication uh, with time-based one-time passwords. Oh, wow. Um, that we had somebody who needed that. So I, I read the source code, learned how Horizon worked. Horizon's just a Django application. Uh, made some modifications and, and hooked into the OpenStack system using the uh, Python SDKs um, that OpenStack provides. Um, so yeah, it, it's a really nice community um, of code to work with because it's all um, pretty pretty systematic. The API documentation I think is is good and, and well well put together, um, and it's all it's all using the same SDKs. Like the developers themselves use the same kinds of tools and, and code that they make available for other people to use, um, which is really nice because you know it's going to be good quality. They're going to uh, really be invested in it. That's really cool. So something I, I think is going to be a natural question that is probably going to come up if it hasn't already and I didn't just miss it, but it comes to getting started. Um, now, it's often the case, obviously, someone in the home lab is, is going to have um, just one server. But considering that there's a lot of off-lease servers showing up on eBay for really, you know, affordable prices, if somebody was to, you know, get a few of those servers and, I don't know, maybe a, what would you say, 10 gig card, 25 gig cards to link them together, I kind of feel like with a decent, not a huge budget, but a, you know, medium to small budget, if you get the right hardware, you could probably have a more comfortable installation on multiple servers rather than, you know, running it all on one. So what would you say to someone who wanted to, you know, get started with, with OpenStack? Should they start with an all-in-one test first and then deploy it onto multiple machines? Should they just go for multiple machines? What would you suggest for getting started? Uh, like I said, I think the all-in-one on a single machine is, is great if you want to just test stuff and not have to really get into the configuration. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to do multiple machines, I think two machines is probably um, a good minimum for uh, deploying OpenStack in a not highly available um, configuration. Um, mm -hmm. You could use the one machine to run the control services for OpenStack. Um, you know, that, those eight cores, 32 gigabytes of, of memory, 
um, that OpenStack needs just to, to exist and then use the other machine for um, compute and the um, storage. Uh, because you, you don't have to use Ceph, you don't have to use network storage, you can just have your VMs um, mount directly onto like the local local disk. Um, you can even use spinning disks if you're really on a, on a budget. Uh, just understand the performance is going to be, you know, maybe not not quite as good um, as SSDs or, or um, especially if you're getting NVMe, um, if you've got that that kind of, of money. Uh, mm -hmm. But you you should be able to do a minimum deployment. I think even some of the the documentation um, that OpenStack has um, looks at that kind of deployment. So putting onto two boxes, one with control plane, one with with compute. Uh, and and the the reason why I, I would make that that split is so that if you provision too much of your compute, you don't ruin OpenStack. Because um, if mm -hmm. everything's running on the same hardware, you have to be real careful with how much RAM you allocate for VMs, uh, because it's very easy to allocate all of the, the RAM on your system, and then now it's unresponsive. And you can't delete the VMs because OpenStack's unresponsive, and you just have a bad time because um, everything's all seized up. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun, but that does kind of sound like something we run into with one solution or another. We usually lock ourselves out of something or um, over, you know, extend something too far. Um, so in some ways that might might be like, oh, that's a challenge. I'm going to totally tackle that. <laughs> that. Not that challenge in particular. Don't do that. Um, well, another thing I'll mention, too, is, um, you know, disclaimer, they're my publisher, but I'm you know, I'm not endorsing these books. I haven't even read them, but I just want to let people know that they exist. I'm sure other publishers have them as well. If you go to Pact Publishing, which is misspelled intentionally as P-A-C-K-T Publishing, their website, last I looked, and it's been a while, they had a ton of OpenStack books there. So if that's a way that you like to learn. They had some books on uh, programming, like Python-related books that are geared towards OpenStack. Um, probably make sure they're up to date before you buy them um, and just, you know, read the reviews, obviously. But it, does, it doesn't appear to me like there's really any shortage of information out there. Um, you just have to find whatever resource works for you and whether it's training videos or reading books or both. Yes, um, you do have to, to be just a little careful that the um, information you're looking at is for the version of OpenStack um, you're using. Yeah, uh, one of the downsides that I've come across with the documentation, especially like the official documentation, is that if you if you search like how do I do a thing in OpenStack, you can easily get three or four different versions of of how to do that um, from a decade's worth of releases. Um, so you just have right. to be be mindful that the uh, information you're you're talking about is for the release you're targeting. Um, in lots of cases, it's usually not not a big deal. Usually, it's it's pretty much the same. Um, but you may come across documentation that's like, hey, things do it this way, but that's in the, the new cutting edge release of OpenStack or a release that's 10 years old. And so it doesn't apply to your, your situation. Right. That, that's true of a lot of things, but I did run into that with OpenStack. I think it's especially true. Um, I, I think there was an instance where I was following a tutorial and it just wouldn't work. And I'm thinking, why doesn't this work? I mean, the person laid out every single step that you have to do. And I'm just copying and pasting commands. I'm not even going my own direction this time, promise. And it doesn't work. And then I look at um, the version, like, oh, right. Um, I'm on a different version of OpenStack than that individual was when they, they wrote it. And then I no longer feel bad about the people that comment on my YouTube videos that my tutorial doesn't work. And then I find out they're using a different version. So it all came back full circle, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but it is true, for sure. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure it's a match. And sometimes... 
you might find that you set up OpenStack and then you look at another tutorial and it's for one version behind the one that you successfully installed and then you have to translate. But as long as you make sure everything is for the version that you're running, then that shouldn't be an issue. Yes, absolutely. Um, I see a few people discussing this in the chat. So a couple of questions, maybe twofold here. What is the protocol used for the OpenStack components to talk to each other network-wise between the nodes? Does it automatically, is it just using the VM network to communicate that's built on the back end, or does it already have some level of encryption uh, between there? And second, when you build all the VMs, what are the networking protocols supported there in terms of uh, managing IP addresses? I've seen someone asked if it used BGP, so let's talk a little bit about OpenStack networking. Okay, uh, so OpenStack networking, you can do everything just about with OpenStack networking. It's That's probably one of the, the most complex or uh, feature-rich pieces. Uh, as for the, the services themselves, they, by default, they don't use any kind of encryption. They just communicate over the network. Um, you can either use a single um, network connection over for all of the uh, all of the information. So for the control plane, for the, the compute services, for storage services, you can you can do that. And I think some of the um, all-in-one or, or simplified configurations will, will do that. Um, it's better to separate that over separate um, networks for security or performance. I know for our configuration, we use, we bond, uh, we have two, two ports that we bond um, together um, for the increased bandwidth and, and redundancy. And then we use VLANs to segregate the um, Ceph traffic, the control plane traffic, the uh, like internal OpenStack service um, communication, and then the uh, actual networks for the virtual machines. So uh, that's that's just one example. There's plenty of different ways you can do this. Uh, one of the the most powerful things about OpenStack is that it has software defined networking. Um, features. So you can set up your OpenStack cloud and you can give your end users the ability to manage their own networking for their um, OpenStack resources in a completely seamless, transparent kind of way where they don't have to be able to touch the um, hardware, the networking hardware, uh, which, you know, in most cases is, is trouble because if somebody can touch the networking hardware, there's all kinds of, of malicious things they can do um, with that access. Um, right. OpenStack lets you lets you give people that same power without having to worry about the security pieces. Um, but like I said, there's lots of different ways you can configure OpenStack um, networking to work. You can have OpenStack manage all of the networking and run uh, network nodes. So in those kinds of configurations, OpenStack runs um, OVN or OpenV switch uh, to provide like virtual switching and routing um, within the OpenStack space. Um, you can also configure OpenStack to offload all that functionality to the um, switches and physical networking gear. Um, you have to have support in your networking hardware, um, like your vendor has to have that support built in. There's specific drivers that some vendors make for OpenStack um, to use. And what that lets you do is that lets you offload. Um, so like when your user would set up a software-defined network inside of OpenStack, it would map directly onto the hardware uh, instead of, OpenStack kind of running OVN, OBS um, to make that that happen. Uh, you can use so many different networking technologies and strategies though to, to, I mean, a lot of this comes down to the VMs and how the VM networking works. Um, so like I said, we use just VLANs um, because we have some networking gear that can't do uh, VXLAN. So we're kind of limited there. Um, I think you can use GRE tunnels. I think you can do uh, some of the other fancier 
networking technologies or vendor specific vendor specific um, technologies. Um, there's really all kinds of different things you can do to run um, OpenStack and facilitate traffic. Um, that is all transparent to your user. That all your user sees is make a VM, make a network, attach VM to network, and that's their their experience, and it just works. Or so attach, basically, uh, they can hose themselves, but they can't hose other people. <laughs> yes. Basically. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. If you work in, if you've worked in IT for any period of time, um, you know, I don't think anybody could ever stop users from, you know, make giving themselves a hard time. But if you could stop users from giving other users a hard time, that's that's always good. Yeah, this you can tell. Uh, Jaden here has worked with development teams where you know you need to segment them. They don't intend to harm each other, but someone will over allocate something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Park, something like some of the um, worst things imaginable were done with the best of intentions. <laughs> I'm misquoting it, I'm sure, but something like that. And part of the uh, part of the networking the networking is this way because um, you know not every networking use case is the same. And you need to find the technology that that works for you. Um, so, and there's also limitations to some of them. Like I know um, with if you're using VLANs, you are limited in the number of VLANs. I think there's only like 40, 96 VLANs or something you can you can set up um, in oh. many cases. Uh, but if you're I, so, we're talking about the enterprise. Don't right. forget. Uh, but if you're using VXLAN, it's like millions of of uh, private networks that you can you can set up. And this, you know, for, for home lab stuff, not a big deal. But if you're at the enterprise and you've got 100,000 VMs with, with 10,000 networks, um, suddenly you, you have to worry about this kind of stuff. Um, make sure that your, your system can, can accommodate that. Um, so for, for sure, for the home lab, I would say you're probably great just running everything over a single network connection. And you don't need to worry about it. And if you want to try to get a taste of that enterprise life and you just hate yourself and your weekends, uh, try to bring in those other technologies and set things up in those those more complicated ways. Well, yeah, as long is... as we're not asking people to set up an email server. Yes. <laughs> you don't need a host mail anymore. But right. no, no, um, no, I think this goes to when you're building these structures for the enterprise, <laughs> I've reminded many people, the, the things you choose are directly related to the ultimate scalability of the product you plan to do. Yes. So, yeah. Well, we only plan VSLAN, but we plan to have more than, we're going to give every client their own VLAN until you realize, well, then that means we have a cap on the number of clients we can have. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I can, I can tell you too, make sure uh, if you do need to use 4,096 VLANs, make sure your hardware can support having 4,096 VLANs oh, yeah. um, assigned. Because uh, we, we learned that lesson the, the hard way, uh, you know, because it just, it'll just crash if it doesn't have enough CPU or, or RAM um, on the little networking yeah, that, uh, that's a good point too. Uh, your network mm -hmm. hardware—it's um, it, probably not something home lab people ever think about, but there is a difference in some of the enterprise gear when they say max. Like they, everyone just assumes, well, it supports VLAN, so I can use all the VLANs. Not exactly. You can only have so many tables. Um, it segues into. I, I, I'd love to find a good story about it, but one of I for understand um, as we further has segmented the ASNs, there's been problems with how big the tables are to understand routing tables and some of the large scale enterprise equipment, because we didn't know we were going to break the internet up like this. <laughs> Nobody thinks yep. they need more than 32 kilobytes of storage until they yep. do. Yeah, until they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me that um, you could get a, you know, a word processor type, nothing 
like not even a single character in that word processor, save an empty document, and there's probably a good chance it won't fit on the floppy disk with, with typing nothing. But we used to, you know, store those documents all the time. And games themselves are um, at one point smaller than the average Word document. And yeah, you mentioned store. I just want to throw that in there. It's just amazing how far we've come. And either we're more powerful or we're wasting more. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a story for another day, I think. Yeah. So what else, do you have any other thoughts about um, getting started with OpenStack? Because I also don't want to scare people off and make anyone think like they shouldn't try this because of the higher footprint. I think the higher footprint might be a value add because, you know, if you're trying to get a job in, in the enterprise, that'll help you practice for that. And I'm sure there's probably certifications out there that people could practice too. Um, but are there any other thoughts you have on your side, Jaden? Um, so the the main OpenStack website has some really good resources, I think, for like certifications, documentation, uh, resources. Um, some of the different vendors in the OpenStack space also have uh, pretty good documentation. Um, you can also log into IRC, join the IRC. That's where OpenStack, um, the OpenStack community lives and, and works and listen in and or talk to people. Uh, they're they're real friendly. I haven't had any, any bad uh, interactions with OpenStack folks um, so far. Uh, and I mean, I say if you, if you just want to set it up, then yeah, absolutely dive, dive into the documentation. If you want to use OpenStack for like a workload, if you want to say, see if this is a good fit for, for work, um, try to find an OpenStack hosting company. There's tons out there. They're usually smaller, um, small or mid, medium-sized hosts. Um, they're often located in, in other countries, uh, but they'll, they'll have virtual machines that you can use that you can get for a couple dollars a month. Um, they'll give you access to the APIs, uh, many of them, and you can you can try out and evaluate OpenStack as a user uh, before you get into um, having to be an architect. Because um, for me, that's that's one of the the biggest struggles for for OpenStack and people trying to adopt OpenStack as a as a company is that it's it's hard. It's really hard to set up and configure. And so many teams have tried to set it up and configure it, and they'll spend six months and millions of dollars and fail. And that's that's not a good experience for for anybody, and especially for folks who want to use OpenStack. Um, so if, if you're at, you know, if you like OpenStack and you want to pitch OpenStack for your your job or your team to use, um, just make sure it's going to work with your workload first before you embark on uh, trying to set it up and build it all yourself. Yeah, that's it's one of those. It's important when there's a complicated project that to hire, uh, to hire the expert because it's just um, randomly throwing it all together. You may not get the best experience. You may not. You may get a misrepresentation of the product based on that your first time you set it up. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would also say too that um, adjust your mindset going in. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm sure like a lot of people will uh, disagree with me on this, but I'll, I'll stand by it. Um, being confused and frustrated is the best state in which to learn, because that's when you're looking for a solution to a problem. Don't let frustration make you stop. I mean, if you are having fun and you see it as a puzzle, putting together a puzzle, a puzzle that's going to take some time to really understand how the pieces fit, I think you're you'll get a lot out of it. Because it's challenges like these that really um, help you learn. And if you're just starting out in networking or infrastructure, um, don't be hard on yourself. You just don't have the same experience that somebody might have that's been doing it for decades. And that's okay because they too were at your level at one point, not knowing what the heck anything is and how it 
fits together and why the heck won't this work, right? We've all said that, but um, absolutely working through those types of things is what helps us learn. So if you approach it as in like, this is going to be different than anything that I've installed before, but it's going to help me learn and through any you know doubts that you might have, um, that state, you'll learn a lot more going through it. So just be comfortable, take your time, try not to get frustrated and um, focus on the fun aspect of it. And I think if you go into it, that mindset, knowing that, yes, it's a challenge, but it's not insurmountable. Many other people before you have succeeded here. So all you have to do is just keep at it. Yep. Uh if, you, if there's still time, I can answer a few more yeah. questions sure. um, that folks have. Um, so, so one question I, I commonly get is, you know, OpenStack and Kubernetes. Why pick one or why should I use one over the other? Mm -hmm. um, I would say, first of all, they're for two very different kinds of things. Um, OpenStack primarily is for running virtual machines. Um, so, you know, full kernel environments. And Kubernetes is geared for containers. Um, so two different kinds of things. If you've got a containerized application that's ready to run for Kubernetes, by all means use Kubernetes. That's what it's for. Um, but if you've still got something that's kind of an older fashioned type of software that isn't well suited to a container or the kind of stateless um, architecture that Kubernetes um, enforces, then OpenStack may be a good, good fit for you. Um, I will say one um, increasing popular um, thing is running Kubernetes on top of OpenStack. Um, yep. This is the, the Open Infrastructure uh, Foundation, who's the the uh, open foundation that runs OpenStack and some other infrastructure projects. They've been pushing, um, it's a new stack called Loki and it's Linux OpenStack Kubernetes infrastructure. Um, so you run Kubernetes in your OpenStack virtual machines and use Kubernetes to orchestrate your um, container workloads. And so this way you get the, the advantages of both that you can easily scale your, your Kubernetes clusters um, up and down you can deploy your containers up and you know scale them automatically with Kubernetes. Um, and, and they've found the Open um, Infrastructure Foundation in their own research. They found uh, that 70% uh, of their big OpenStack users are running Kubernetes this way on top of their OpenStack clouds. Wow. Um, so yeah, you don't have to have you know you don't have to pick one or the other. You can have both and get all the, the advantages and, and benefits um, from using both. Um, I know another question I saw is uh, monitoring for OpenStack. Um, so there are some OpenStack services that you can use to get information about the state of the OpenStack system. Um, for your workloads and your virtual machines yourself, you'll just need to use whatever traditional monitoring tool you, you use. There's not anything special OpenStack's bringing to the table. There are some vendors, some vendors who have closed source monitoring solutions for OpenStack, if that's your, your thing, um, if you need that kind of, of uh, paid for service for your, your company or team. Uh, but OpenStack itself does have some tools you can use to uh, get in the source and see what's going on inside of the, the messaging queue or um, get alerted whenever the state of the cloud is this way or that way. Uh, but those are those are non-core systems that you have to set up and configure yourself, uh, which again, gets back to that, that enterprise use case. Uh, I will say one thing I really like about OpenStack is that it is highly configurable and then you can build a cloud that is exactly right for your use case instead of having to pay for and carry 20 or 30 features that you're never going to use. There's also, I, I'm, I'll just throw it out there because I know 
we've not covered it. Uh, maybe one day we will on this channel. Um, but uh, Prometheus, there's an integration for Prometheus to monitor OpenStack. A quick, I figured it was, and I figured it even uh, it was part of the. Um, it's on the OpenStack in the docs of how to tie Prometheus to it. I've seen it in there with a quick Google search. So yeah, there's plenty of open source things you can uh, do to monitor it. Yep. Thank you. Uh, so th those are the questions that I, I saw come through that I specifically wanted to, to yeah. address. Yeah. All right. See any more, Jay? Do you think we answer as many questions as we can in a podcast we, about this? Yeah, we, we have. I mean, because I think to go to the next level from here, we have to show it. Right. And we have to walk people through it, which is, you know, like I said, I'm learning it myself. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to be, you know, fairly soon. I'll have some uh, OpenStack content on my own channel. But until then, um, I, I don't think we could do that in a podcast because the majority of people are probably just driving or, you know, listening while they work and, you know, can't see us. Yeah. So. And and I yeah. feel a little foreshadowing here. So Jay seemed to be asking a lot of questions. What if someone were to buy a few servers and maybe build something? I think it could be because Jay could be that someone who might want to build something, maybe for a few OpenStack tutorials. <laughs> and maybe I have a few um, R710s. Yes, yeah, a few R710s in my closet right now that are begging for a purpose in life. And it yeah, might be there that we go. Them. <laughs> and maybe as time upgrades, there'll be another one on the way too. Cause I got some, I may have some older servers cause we're building new stuff at my office. So, and yeah, I'll be there. in touch with you about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jaden, for joining us and educating us in OpenStack. This is a lot of fun. I learned a lot about it. And hopefully our audience did as well. Um, and as we said, even Jaden said, it's hard. He's someone who does this for a living. So he's still. <laughs> He's don't feel bad. It's, it's okay. Still, <laughs> yes. We're all learning here, right? That's it's fine. It's a learning opportunity. Just, just if you don't get it in the first hour, you started playing with it. Keep trying. You don't give up. It's it's not you. It's OpenStack. It's a big project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, take care, everyone. Always listen. Uh, head over to the feedback section if you have comments and concerns because me and jay love doing the q a episodes where we follow up on some detail overlooked or uh, learn about new projects and uh, if you've had some experience with openstack uh, leave it in the comments down below we're always you know learning about other home lab users experience i know at least a few enterprise people were talking about having their own bgp routes so i know we have some advanced users uh in here as well so cool hearing from everyone and thanks thank you thank you